Thank you, HelloFresh, for sponsoring this episode. What Came Next is intended for mature audiences only. Episodes discuss topics that can be triggering, such as emotional, physical, and sexual violence, suicide, and murder. I am not a therapist, nor am I a doctor. If you're in need of support, please visit somethingwaswrong.com forward slash resources for a list of nonprofit organizations that can help. Opinions expressed by my guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of myself or Broken Cycle Media. Resources and source material are linked in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. Lily Sanders is a dancer, author, and actress with an extensive creative resume. However, it wasn't until escaping domestic violence that she found her ultimate calling. We are so incredibly grateful that she was willing to discuss her journey and mission in the media, as well as all that came next for her after freeing herself from a life of extreme physical violence. My name is Lily Sanders. I'm an author. My first book was Truth to Triumph, The Spiritual Guide to Finding Your Truth. I am a manifestation coach. I'm also a domestic violence expert for major media. That pretty much came about as a spinoff from my book. I grew up in a very strict household. There were a lot of rules, but to a fault. What I mean by that is lurking in the environment of such strictness, we wound up really walking on eggshells. The result was a lot of emotional and mental suffering. There was a lot of physical violence. Most people could say that their family legacy was the China or the business. Well, ours was the beatings. My father would take his open palm and bash it on each ear from right to left, just pounce it as if you're grabbing a ball, but pushing hard. It was an abusive environment. There were a lot of rules. You couldn't do after school activities, any social organized activities. We really weren't allowed to do anything. We didn't even have a television for most of my years growing up. 4.30, my father would pull in the driveway. I had to come home directly after school. I had my chores. Everybody had to be home, washed up and dressed for dinner. My mom was a very quiet, meek person, also in fear of my father. So it was almost like the five of us were all afraid of my father. One of my chores was helping my mom set the table. And when my father came home, I used to brush his suit. Children should not be walking on eggshells. They should be laughing. They should be playing. They should be able to be children, specifically on my father's side. His father was known to be very similar. He was known to throw the Christmas tree out the apartment window in the Bronx. I saw similarities from stories that I heard from my grandfather, whom I never met. I knew it from my life with my father. I was allowed to go to ballet class. It literally became my sanctuary. Dance was my sanctuary. 
art has always been my love, painting and violin, dance, of course, very creative in journaling. From a very, very young age, I journaled all the time. I was a passion finder. Then there was depression in high school, 11th and 12th grade. Oddly enough, depression kicked in after my dad left. I know that sounds odd, but I want viewers to understand this because your children may slump into a depression or they may shift into adverse behavior. I couldn't wake up in the morning for school, just started to fall into a depression. My mom loved her to pieces, but she was with my father since she was like 15. She never really even had that life as she knew it growing up to be normal. And it wound up being almost a role reversal. So when I was 15, that's when I really needed a mom. I felt like I was her mother. And it was very, very hard for me to navigate through that because I didn't even know who I was yet. I really felt alone. I had a couple of key friends, just a few that I really could depend on. And I never told any of my friends how badly violent the abuse was. I never wanted to talk about it. In 11th grade, I had one or two mentors, which were my two teachers that I really adore. I'm so grateful and blessed to have them in my life at the time. They nudged me and said, you're a smart girl. Like what's going on? I got my act together by the beginning of 12th grade, my senior year, and I got my grades back up. So I graduated a half a year early. I needed to just get out and really follow my dream. I had my aspirations from a very, very young age. I wanted to be a dancer and an actress. I always said, I'm going to be in Hollywood. By the time I was 23, I was living my dream. I was in Hollywood on Ed McMahon's Star Search as a dance contestant. After that, came back to New York. I went back onto Pounding the Pavements with auditions. I was cast as a showgirl dancer for the iconic Wrangling Brothers Bonham and Bailey Circus. There were 21 of us. I was showgirl number 13. I remember at the end of the audition, the producers saying, we're going to send you a contract. We're going to send you plane tickets. We're going to pick you up at the airport in Florida. You need to pack four seasons in one bag. Unbeknownst to me, my room was a three and a half by six foot room in a train car. Every single person lived on the train car and we traveled from city to city on this train. So the showgirls were all in one car. The clowns were in another car. Like everyone had their own designated cars, but no one told me you needed soap. You needed this. You needed that. The beginning was a disaster. It was a one-year contract and we toured 59 cities in a year. After that one-year contract was over, I really wanted to get back to New York and get into acting. At the time I was 23, it's a short-lived career as a dancer. And I knew that I wanted to get into acting anyway. And I was very much always into writing as I am now. I was working a lot on stage in Manhattan, New York, and I worked a lot off-Broadway. I realized that there were all these suppressed pains that I had from growing up that worked great for me as I became this Stanislavski method actor because I had lots to draw from. But that wasn't a foolproof acting method for me. It could drive one mentally nuts. So this began my search for an acting method that I could depend on. Finally, I was introduced to the Meisner method, which soon became my go-to tool and resource for performing. I discovered that this is exactly how mindful and present 
his method was in its application to life itself. And it was an astounding observation for me because later on in life, I realized, wow, now I understand what it means to be mindful and present or brainful and present in every single situation and not living in some kind of mental noise or dialogue in the head. I did a couple of bit parts. One of my biggest was I had a silent bit part with Nicolas Cage on It Could Happen to You. Then I was finally cast as a regular day player, 10 lines or under. It was a daytime soap opera on ABC, One Life to Live. It was a nice regular gig. I was really actually earning a living as an actress just around that time when I was really living my dream, I took this 180 pivot. And all of a sudden, boom, this happy parachuter comes out from the sky and just lands on my lap. The truncated version is, I had been invited to go out to a barbecue out in the suburbs, and then everything kind of spun off from there. And I wound up in this relationship. In the beginning, on paper, it looked great. He wined and dined me. He would drive out into the city to come see me. He wore a suit. He smelled good with cologne. And he looks like a good catch, right? Nice guy. But there is no model of an abuser. It's rarely what you think. That's why it's always a shock. And conversely, no one chooses to be a victim. No one feels comfortable being abused. No one sees it as familiar. In fact, they feel trapped in the unfamiliarity of it. And the reason why I talk about this is because one of the myths out there is that, oh, if you come from abuse, then you're comfortable being in an abusive situation. Not only is that offensive, but it's just not the truth. I was in a couple of fine relationships. I had a 10-year relationship with someone that I met in the circus that was not an abusive relationship at all. For some reason, all the way down the road, I fall into this abusive trap. His rage was terrifying. And when we got married, I started to see the signs of abuse. I lost my gig at One Life to Live. I never fulfilled that dream because he took me out of everything. I remember him coming over one night with a couple of things, a bag, a jacket, some memorabilia of his. I opened up the door of my apartment. He said something and hand me this memorabilia. He says something else and hands me the jacket. And then he walks in with this suitcase. And I was like, did he just manipulate himself into moving in with me? These were the beginning signs that I felt like he was overpowering me. I didn't know how to stop it. Again, I didn't have the tools, the resources. It just went on and on and on. I thought to myself, my name's on the lease and if it doesn't work, I'll just kick him out. But it didn't happen that way. It was like, I'm gonna get you out of your lease. And I'm like, oh no. I don't want to be out of my lease. Before I knew it, I was out of the lease. I was moving out into the suburbs where I didn't want to be. He didn't want me working either. It was, you've been working your whole life. I want to take care of you. It was also his way of making sure that I didn't land that dream job and go off being this star on Broadway. He made sure that that didn't happen. And I allowed him to overpower me. He did it in a very keen and romantic way. He was very persuasive. The signs really came when he started to get really loud. Little things like that started chipping away at me. It was probably the most mental and emotional abuse I've ever experienced was the things he used to say to me. It took me a long time to really overcome. He would bang on things and break things. 
He would come in and not talk for an entire weekend. He would get angry and start strangling me on my neck and foaming at the mouth. He came home one day from work and he took out this paperwork out of his attache. And he said, I got together with so-and-so and I had him write up these divorce papers. Basically what this says is we're going to divorce on paper. We're going to keep living in the cottage while we keep building the house. We were building a house on the land that we lived in. We bought it together. So he said, we're going to keep finishing the house, but we're going to divorce on paper and you're going to move into the house and you're going to take care of the house and clean the house and food shop. I'm going to still insure you, but we're going to be divorced on paper. And I looked at him like, what is he talking about? So I said, I don't understand why are we divorcing on paper? He said, because then I'll know that it's all about the love. Because we're married less than five years, you're not going to get any maintenance. I'm just going to take care of you in the house. It was financial abuse. He took me away from my work. He took me away from my dream. He used to give me allowance. I had to live out of this old-fashioned folder. There was a slot for food money. Now, I had nothing of my own. I had no more banking. I had nothing of my own. There was also sexual abuse. He made me sleep with him. You think I'm in the mood to be intimate with someone that just served me divorce papers? I went underneath the bed when he was trying to rape me because I wanted to record it. And he said, are you recording me? He grabbed me and he pushed me over and there was a whole altercation and he hurt me. He bit my back. The next morning, this is the most painful experience. I make his breakfast, I give his lunch, and it was so old school. All of a sudden, I felt like I was my mother. I was like, what the hell is going on in my life here? And he leaves, and I go to, the only thing I was allowed to do was the gym. And those were my only friends there, by the way. I went to this girl that I knew was going through a divorce at the gym. She was an acquaintance of mine. And I said, I need an attorney. She says, why? And I says, oh, my husband came home last night and said he wants me to divorce on people, but still live with him as if we're married. She was so angry. She was like, you have to call my attorney. I made an appointment with her attorney. I went down and spoke with him. I told him everything that had been going on. Long story short, I hired this attorney. He served him with papers. Now, I never divorced anyone before like this. I had no idea that he was going to be served with papers while I'm living with the man. But we divorced, and it was extremely painful. He played very dirty, and I had to battle a bunch of lies in and out of court. That divorce went on for a long time, over a decade. It was a nightmare, the constant harassment, being dragged in and out of court. And the only reason it stopped is because I decided that I was not going to fight anymore. I was not going to let another human make me sick and ill. I went like back to back from him and I went right into his marriage, who was completely different in abuse. I didn't heal. I went right into the first person that paid attention to me. I wound up marrying. It was nine years of hell. Why did I stay in this so long? Because now I was so convinced Again, this is part of the cognitive distortion, the conditioning of the mind that maybe it's me, maybe I can fix this marriage. I don't want to fail again and all of those things that go on in a victim's mind. He was so physically and verbally abusive. He said some really cruel things to me. One of them was, you ruined my life. And because of you, I'll never know what it's like to have a child of my own. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get a young girl pregnant and you're gonna raise the child. He would literally beat the shit out of me. Break down doors, I was replacing doors. 
One time he broke my collarbone. He threw me airborne across my bedroom. I said, I have to go to the doctor. This is really bad. And he goes, what are you going to tell the doctor? You can't go to the doctor. So he had to help me bathe. I took my right hand and I grabbed my left wrist and slowly and gingerly would just lift it, raise it just high enough toward my head so that he could wash under my arms and my back. Imagine standing in the shower with the hot water running over you and the man who actually damaged you is washing you. And you have no choice because you need to get clean. I felt like I had zero dignity left in my life. At this point, I started to have these little baby awakenings. The only thing is, this person was so violent that I had to learn how to become smarter than my perpetrator. And I got to figure out a way out before he kills me. To know me is to know my love for food. And HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit, is definitely my newest crush. Selecting my meals, opening up my kit, and diving into the delicious recipes has definitely become one of the highlights of my week. HelloFresh takes the stress out of mealtime by delivering delicious meals and snacks right to your door. A busy fall schedule doesn't always leave you with time to spare and plan. With HelloFresh, you don't need to spend all day planning or all evening in the kitchen to whip up a wholesome meal. With their quick and easy recipes and 15-minute meals, you can get a tasty dinner on the table in less time than it takes to get takeout or delivery. My personal favorite recipes were the crunchy onion chicken and mushroom burgers, plus I love all of their celebrity-created meals. Also, as much as I love to cook, HelloFresh has definitely inspired me to get more creative, even when I'm not making a HelloFresh meal. And now you can go to HelloFresh.com slash 50WCN and use code 50WCN for 50% off plus 15% off for the next two months. That's right. That's HelloFresh.com slash 50WCN and use code 50WCN for 50% off your first order plus 15% off the next two months. We cannot wait to see what you whip up. We also went to a psychotherapist who told me he's out of his mind. And he couldn't help us because my ex-husband didn't want to go back anymore. And so he said to me, he needs to get on heavy medication and he's not going to change. What are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. That psychotherapist texted me and said, hey, I was thinking about you. I'm just wondering how things are going. I said, everything's terrible. It's getting worse and worse. Episodes all the time, every other day. And he said, if you feel your life is in danger, then tell him to leave. And I said, ha ha, how am I going to do that? He'll kill me. And he said, do you feel your life is in danger? I said, of course. He said, tell your husband to back off or you'll have him removed. And so I had to make a decision to wake up. I had to really create my own awakening. So I started to think about an exit plan. First, I prayed and I was in the shower, literally down on my knees crying. This is embarrassing to admit, but I literally was asking God to give me some kind of disease or something so I could just die because I didn't know how to get out. And I prayed for peace within my walls. And then all of a sudden I got out of the shower and I was having this weird feeling. It was a Sunday morning. And I said, that landline hasn't been working. So I called, I think it was Optimum. I said, you've got to come. I really need my landline fixed because I was having a funny feeling. 
that something was going to happen in an abusive situation. It might seem like the episodes are far apart once a year, three times the next year, maybe once every couple of months, then it's once a month. Before you know it, the episodes become closer and closer together. So they're happening all the time. A cyclical and snowballing event. So I was kind of really pressed on getting this fixed. I remember him saying, why do you have to sit home on a Sunday? I said, because I want to make sure that these phones are working. They come, the guy says to me, the problem is they're old lines, old wires, and I can't do anything about it. I said to the guy, I need to be able to use this phone if I need it. What can I do? He said, okay. And I don't know if he knew what I was talking about or not, but he said, plug it into the back of your modem and it will work because it's bypassing all these wires. Lo and behold, that night, I was watching a show and he starts to pick on me because of the show that I was watching. It was brothers and sisters. There was a gay scene and he was like, what kind of Christian woman are you that you like shows with these gay scenes? And he was going on about it. He starts to get ornery and he starts to come at me. So I said exactly what my psychotherapist said to say, and I had my cell phone with me. I said, back off or I'll have you removed. He grabs my phone faster than I can even flip it open because it was a flip phone at the time. He takes my phone. He just literally breaks it in half and the wires are hanging out. So now my dancing technique kicks in on me and I start to run for my life literally past him up two flights of stairs across the catwalk into my bedroom, tries to close the door behind me. He's coming up behind me, pushes the glass door open. He proceeds to beat me to a pulp. It was a very ugly scene. So he leaves me laying there on the floor in my bedroom and he takes his phone. He walks out of the bedroom door. He's going down the stairs. I couldn't get any lower than this because I decided that was it. I was done. I get up, go to the door of my bedroom and I said, I hate you. I never want to see you again. And he comes running up and he beats me more. And then he lifts me, puts me on the bed and starts strangling me to the point of, oh, this is my last breath. All these things were flashing before my mind of my whole life. I opened my eyes. I was like looking at his face. And then I just verbalized. It didn't come out in words, but my mouth was saying, please. He slowly let go of my neck. I slowly started to get my wind. My jaw was completely stuck where it was, but I started to breathe. I didn't have a cell phone. Mine was broken. And we had the landline that wasn't working, right? So he leaves. I grabbed the landline phone. I plug it into the jack. I called the authorities. They came. In the time that they went out to look for him, I put an entire exit plan together. I had cash ready. I had spare keys ready for both of our cars. I had a place to hide out where my ex-husband would never know to go, would never know where the house is, where I was staying. You can't go to friends that your perpetrator knows. You can't go to family where your perpetrator knows where they live. And then you go to your attorney, you go to the courts, you get your order of protection, and you never, ever, ever look back. The point is the exit plan has to be safe and effective. Unfortunately, you have to consider everyone else, your loved ones, they can be in harm's way as well. New York state law was that once someone's beaten like that, whether I wanted to press charges or not, they do. And I'm going to quote the captain that was at my house. I says, now, how do I move forward? He said, you don't. He said, no matter what, it's already done. It's the DA against him now. Whether you wanted to press charges or not, it's already done. But that doesn't go anywhere. 
He didn't serve time. They separate divorce from criminal in New York. And so one thing had nothing to do with the other. He did one night, was arraigned the next day, got my stay away. We went through the motions. I never even looked at him. I didn't even give him the honor of looking near him. He went against the order many, many times, leaving flowers in my mailbox, putting up big poster signs in front of my home, how much he loves me. He stole my car, then he stole my car again. You know what they said to me? Well, we can't arrest him because you guys aren't technically divorced yet. So even though the car's under your name, he still owns half of it because you're married still. These are the answers that I got from the police and from courts. Every time he went against the order, I picked up the phone, I called the police, and he was arrested. And I never had to show up, but I know that he was arrested because I found out after the fact because of so much emotional and mental abuse. On top of being in an industry that wants you to be just bone and muscle. I was always not seeing really who I was in the mirror. I had a huge lack of self-love, only I didn't know it, which resulted in anorexia. I researched a lot because I really wanted to know how bad anorexia was for you. I remember seeing this movie with Karen Carpenter, and I remember she died of anorexia. I cried when she died. And I had no idea that anorexia was lethal. There's specific ways to overcome and thrive despite your victimization that is very specific. You really have to be an advocate for yourself. I really had to come to terms with, okay, I've got to love myself. I'm going to eat right and I'm going to heal my body. I'm going to love my body. I'm going to love myself, love my heart, love my brain, love everything about myself. My experience it brought me to my heart. It brought me to connecting my heart with my brain, with the world as I wish to navigate through in the present moment and moving forward in the future. It was the internal work that shifted my perspective, that shifted my heart, my life. It was experience that taught me love. That was the healing for me. There was zero education on domestic violence. And that was just in mid-90s. So I typically like to describe my experiences through storytelling, without the labels, without the terms. Listeners could really recognize the behaviors in different disguises rather than attach labels. It's not a one-size-fits-all. There is a common denominator, though, that we all know, and that's some form of power and control over you, your money, your children, your pets, the things you own. You're not allowed to own all that power and control. One in four women that you know, one in seven men that you know, have been victims of severe physical violence like beating, burning, strangulation by an intimate partner in their lifetime. People think they're immune from it. They think that, oh, it's not going to happen to me. It's not going to happen to my child. It's not going to happen to my sister, my brother, my uncle, my aunt. Unless they're really getting the education they need, no one is immune. If we can really learn, even as bystanders, my girlfriend had said, oh, I knew you were being hit. If you knew them, why didn't you say anything? Don't be afraid to get out there in a very kind and humble and authentic way. Don't judge. Say if you suspect a friend is being abused, just say, hey, just checking in with you. Everything okay? In reality, as a child victim, It was really the uncompromising belief systems I was taught as a child 
that were to become the foundation I built my life upon as a young adult. This is wrong. This is right. You have to do this. You have to do that. None of that had anything to do with me expressing who I was, loving who I was, me even remotely knowing who I was. After all of this that I had just talked about, I wound up moving into Manhattan, into the busiest, craziest, most lively city probably in the world so that I could hibernate and write my book, Truth to Triumph. I would say writing my book was the most healing, although I never admitted that until afterward because I thought I was healed already, but I think writing it down and launching it, now it's out there. Oh boy, there's no turning back. I went back to the manifesting, the things that serve me. This is what was a very pivotal shift in my life for me. I no longer wanted to do anything for me and for my healing. My approach was, what is it that God, and if someone listening doesn't relate to God, then you can call it universe, higher power, whatever works for you is fine. But for me, I said, what is it that you would have of me to do here on this earth? Why am I here? I was learning about the essence of spirituality. I had detached from any church or religion, but I never, ever denied that force. So I had this bulb go off and say, you're here to speak on TV. You're here to speak on radio. You're here to produce entertainment that helps bring awareness and positive social change. One thing led to another. I came across someone on a TED Talk and I says, oh, I'd like to do what she did. I saw that she was in different news segments. I learned her method. I started to get exposure in major media between my book and telling my personal story and speaking engagements and relationship building and podcasts like this and my passion to reach the masses, truly reach the masses so that I can help others come out into the light, out from the darkness. I'm so blessed that I'm able to really speak it here. And I'm so blessed to be able to be on major media like I am and use those platforms as a domestic violence expert. I do a lot of news segments and booking engagements in universities. I've been fortunate enough to reach hundreds of millions of people with that major media exposure. And yet I have so much more to reach. As a speaker, I do a lot of myth busting. I go on to speak to a particular event that's on the news, and then I can end it with a couple of key points that will educate their audience on how that impacts an individual or community or what we can do to change that, stop that, or prevent that. It's just been a little more challenging to share any part of my story in the news segments because they're so quick. 30 seconds to five minutes, six minute segments. And they're all very quick back and forth. You have to speak in sound bites. You want to kind of get a lot of things in. All those global beliefs about abuse. And I bring insight and education and reason to humanize the whole domestic violence experience because it's still not humanized. I was on a podcast with the victim and people were actually leaving comments. Well, people that live in abusive situations they don't work. I'm like, what? Am I really reading this? It pisses me off. I'm going to be honest with you. It's ridiculous that people would still have that kind of stigma. And I feel like a lot of that is because of the media, because of the films that you're watching, because of things that you're seeing on TV, and things are not really humanized. Most people in the industry of media, they love a good story. But today I think that there's a lot of networks out there that they're really looking to bring their viewers more 
even in a newsy way, that human piece to it. My mission really for anchors and TV networks, those that have really interesting segments and really get out to the people, is to really not just go on as a victim or a survivor, because typically that's how we're featured, but I'm a change maker. My podcast, Beyond the Current Situation, gives me the opportunity to bring other thought leaders, survivors, and medical professionals, celebrities that have really had adversity in their life, tell how they went beyond that current situation. So I love that platform. I think it is very healing for other people. But to that extent, I still always keep wanting to do more and more teaching people how to make, for instance, that safe and effective exit plan. If you want to prevent domestic violence or intimate partner violence, you really must implement programs, talks, workshops that educate on relationship health, on identifying the disguises behind an abuser, and training that's curated to humanize the domestic violence experience with a community of passionate experts. I'm happy to say I feel very healed from my past. I really long for victims to get to that place. And one of the ways that they're going to get to that place is by the media to eventually begin to take the steps to show people how to remove the stigma. I'd like to just give a piece of advice for your listeners that are in an abusive relationship. The first piece is really knowing your truth. Every single person walking on this earth, you're significant. You're a significant being in the landscape of the universe. No one is more special than the next person. So my advice is to embrace that truth and begin to imagine living a life of dignity and love. Dignity is your birthright. Love is your birthright. So my advice is to claim it. That's number one. Second, if you haven't already done so, Create a safe and effective exit plan for you. If you have children for you and your children, don't ever, ever look back. Be proud of who you are. Be proud of where you are right now. It's those experiences that will make you stronger if you allow it. Education's power. Knowledge is power. Identifying the disguises behind it is power. Because like I said earlier, there's no model for it. They're all disguised. I named my movement Evan. E-V-A-N, and it's a movement to end community violence and future pace for peace. And I named it after the Hebrew word rock, good messenger. I'm tackling gang violence, intimate partner violence, and organ trafficking. I'm looking for anyone that wants to join me in ending the violence and creating community peace, not just in New York, but across the country. LilySanders.live is my website. You'll see Truth to Triumph. And you'll also see Beyond the Current Situation on there, my podcast. Also, head over to my Instagram page. Thank you. I'm blown away by your efforts. Everything you've accomplished, despite all the heartache that was forced upon you, you are a force to be reckoned with, clearly. And I'm just so thankful you gave me time and the awareness. Thank you for having me on here. Thank you, honestly. Thank you for allowing me to be a voice. Thank you for giving me the time. And thank you for being so supportive. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Next week on What Came Next. I speak about my life as a sex trafficked slave for 16 years. 
what that experience did to me and what I was able to emerge through. So I'm seen as a bit of a light for those who haven't yet been able to find these. Thank you again to HelloFresh for sponsoring this episode. Don't forget to visit HelloFresh.com slash 50WCN and use code 50WCN for 50% off plus 15% off two months. What Came Next is a Broken Cycle Media production co-produced by Amy B. Chesler and Tiffany Reese. If you'd like to help support What Came Next, you can leave us a positive review, support our sponsors, or follow Broken Cycle Media on Instagram at Broken Cycle Media. Check out the episode notes for sources, resources, and to follow our guests. Thank you again for listening.